Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. So there certainly seems to be a lot of consensus in this country right now that the de facto Republican nominee is Donald Trump. And you know that because now uh, President Biden is attacking attacking him as if he is his uh, competition, which is pretty interesting. They're saying that there will not be uh, presidential debates in 2024, which is pretty fascinating because I've been certainly watching politics for a long time, many decades, and we've always had presidential debates. There's a whole commission on presidential debates. But I don't know. Right now, the DNC and the RNC have refused, both have refused to commit to debates in 2024, and they were supposed to start in October. But uh, apparently... There's not enough people viewing them. Maybe that's the reason. I don't believe that. One of the most serious problems that's faced by these debate committees and forming these events is the moderators. You know, the problem with moderators, there's two problems. One, that you have to be a pretty prominent person with a pretty argumentative attitude to be a good moderator in a debate. In the 1990s, the moderators were about 5% of the amount of time that anybody was talking in a debate. Now, when you looked at the one that Chris Wallace did, he did 25% of the speaking. So if there's no uh, you know, established limits for the monologues that these moderators are gonna do, which basically are just set up questions for one side or the other. It's just, uh, what's the point? You know, the reactionary behavior of the moderators gives the Democratic candidate always more time to speak. You know, they're obviously uh, a, a pattern of favoritism towards the Democratic nominee. So I, I'm interested to see what happens. Because if there's not going to be presidential debates, and you can almost make the case, if there's not going to be, this would be the year to start it because we know both of these people as president. There's not really any surprise. However, if the nomination goes to someone else in the Republican Party, and I guess even in the Democrat Party, although that's highly unlikely in both instances, but let's say 
that all this, you know, flim-flam that's going on about Nikki Haley now, oh, the if Americans for Prosperity are going to endorse her and the Koch brothers have their money behind her, it's, I guess it's just one Coke now. Well, if she were to get it, wouldn't you have to hear her? I mean, you know what she did as a governor, and maybe you could point to her record as the ambassador to the United Nations, but that's not presidential. It's not even national politics, really. One's international and one's state. So I have no idea how they're going to figure this out. I remember back in uh, 1960 when you had Tricky Dick and John F. Kennedy, they had eight-minute opening remarks where they got to basically make their case to the public. Now people get like two minutes. Two minutes to answer a question and then you get a buzzer. So I don't, I don't know. What's the purpose of a debate like that? Can we dispense with debates? Should we allow the debates to take place on alternative platforms perhaps? Like maybe on X, formerly known as Twitter. It really is going to be a fascinated period, fascinating period in American political politics. It just is. And it's probably the only reason that I don't just bow out gracefully and go off into the uh, land of retirement because it's just an interesting time. Who wants to be stuck not having a venue in which to talk about it? Not me. You know, I've spent the last 30-odd years talking about this stuff, and, like, if you suddenly take away the microphone, even if I hand it to you willingly, I might get crazy, right? There might be no living with me. <laughs> so I'll see, but it's going to be fascinating. I, I don't understand. You know, there's a lot of topics that even though we know what kind of president Joe Biden is and we know what kind of president Donald Trump was, we really need to hear now about things like how much... Money are you going to spend? How, how much immigration are you going to tolerate? How much inflation are we supposed to bear? Are we going to continue down this very uncivil debate about abortion? And what about uh, wars and rumors of wars? But certainly there's a war going on right now. And to not hear directly from the candidates how they handle, how they plan on handling it, really seems as though we've under a whole different system. So I'm curious. I, I'm sure you all are too. We're, we're political junkies. We love this stuff. But I haven't heard any confirmed times for debates. As a matter of fact, all the buzz on the Hill is that there aren't, probably aren't going to be debates. So what do we do? And is it a valuable enough tradition to try and save? Well, I can tell you one thing. A lot of the protests that you see going on, and this is uh, big news all over the, the globe and all over, really all over, all of the networks and cable stations, has this country divided yet again on another issue which seems to fall down party lines. And that makes no sense to me at all. Whether or not you support a ceasefire shouldn't be contingent upon which party you vote for, in my opinion. Because I, I thought that both parties support Israel. Last, time's, uh, last time I checked, that's the buzz. And I don't know. We're now seeing a terrible amount of unrest over this issue. 
People are in fear, in danger. Literally, people are afraid to come out of their houses or their dorm rooms on college campuses or out of their classrooms if they're teachers or professors. How could that not concern the entire government? So we'll see, but I'm telling you, I was fascinated this morning. I got all involved in reading this article, which I think is the beginning of, you're going to see a lot more of this kind of stuff, but apparently one of the top aides in Vivek Ramaswamy's uh, campaign has left. His uh, national political director, Brian Swenson, and he's going to work for President Trump, Donald Trump. And that's been confirmed by Ramaswamy's uh, senior advisor, Trisha McLaughlin. This was somebody who was based in New Hampshire. Then he came on, he was sort of replaced by uh, Mike Biondo. And then, you know, they, the, the bidding war started. Now you're going to get a lot of people jumping ship from Ramaswamy, from Christie, uh, possibly from Governor DeSantis, to either throw their hat in the ring with Nikki Haley or to throw their hat in the ring with Donald Trump. And you have to marvel at the fact that the 38-year-old Vivek Ramaswamy even got as far as he did. You know, he was like the breakout star in the summer after that first sort of horrifying debate, but he just couldn't maintain the momentum, including during the subsequent presidential debates, because he ended up in, you know, just sort of tragic back and forth with uh, Nikki Haley, and also with Mike Pence, if memory serves me correctly. Uh, Mike Pence already out of the race. Uh, look, all I can say is I thought it was a fascinating effort on Vivek Ramaswamy's part. I couldn't support him. He is basically a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's a liberal. He's a capitalist, which makes him attractive and which allows him to speak about certain issues knowledgeably that matter to conservatives and libertarians, but he's a liberal. You know, and there's no... Real, there was never a question in my mind. So that wasn't, he wasn't going to get the Trump voters. And now that you basically have a two to three man race in the Republican primary, I think we can all agree that Donald Trump is by far ahead of everyone else. And unless something really dramatic happens, we'll get the nomination. But the other two are definitely Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. There's nobody on earth who thinks Chris Christie's going to get the nomination, or they might be like, maybe Chris Christie thinks that, but nobody else. Nobody believes that uh, Bugram, or I don't, can't even say his name, the, the governor, Doug Bugram, nobody thinks he's going to get the nomination. Mike Pence is already out. Vivek Ramaswamy's staff is all jumping ship. So he's already out. But what he did, of course, was position himself for future, you know, important jobs. If Pete Buttigieg could be 
the Secretary of Transportation, then certainly Vivek Ramaswamy has a political future. That's all I'm going to say. But we'll see. You know, a lot of the promises that President Trump is making right now are freaking out the Republican Party. I can tell you that. People who are in office, they're not happy about the promises he's making because they're all part of this uniparty, and we know it. They don't want to see that much change. And they feel somewhat ambushed by his promises, which, of course, just makes us more incredibly powerful as a voting block, Trump supporters. Because, you see, we agree. It may be a political headache for the Republicans in the Senate, but health care, immigration, those issues matter to us. And when he talks about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, let me remind everybody out there that that was a winning issue for Republicans. And then they just failed to do it. So you can convince yourself that it's no longer relevant, but it is. And the idea that they're not having any serious conversations in the Senate, at least that I know of, about replacing Obamacare tells you how unprepared they really are for a Donald Trump presidency, which is amazing to me. Because I think, and I, I'm not alone in thinking this. As a matter of fact, I saw a piece that was out today that not only is he the presumptive nominee, he is the presumptive winner of an election right now. If the numbers don't change substantially, he's going to win again, which is exactly what I said almost a year ago when everybody thought I was absolutely crazy. Crazy like a fox. Anyway, don't forget to download the app, the 850 WFTL app. That way you have everything at your fingertips, breaking news, storm alerts, podcasts, uh, reruns, repeats of the shows, whatever you need. You'd have it right on your phone or your laptop. Or you can visit the website, 850WFTL.com for the same reasons. I'm going to take a quick break and I will be right back. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. So yesterday I began to talk about what little we're hearing about the condition that the hostages were kept in in Gaza. The ones that have been released have not spoken. So when I talk about the reports that I'm reading, the first thing I have to make clear is most of these reports are not firsthand. That so far, most of the firsthand the minimal amount of firsthand reports that we've heard have been neutral, you know. However, some of the staff at these hospitals have begun to talk, and they're talking in general ways, and none of it is surprising. You know, poor nutrition, well, we didn't really think that they were, you know, catering the hostages event. But some of the other things that are beginning to emerge are very alarming, particularly if you still have family members, as many Israelis do, that are still being held hostage. 
They've released more than 50 women and children and uh, some foreign nationals, including today, I believe, two Israeli-Russian nationals. There were 17 uh, people from Thailand, which I have now found out. Apparently, a lot of people are brought in from Thailand to work in agriculture. So they're, they're kind of just an immigrant group that comes in to work. They're not actually living full-time in Israel. They're seasonal workers is what you could say. So they got captured and they have been released, I guess because the Hamas people are not mad at uh, people from Thailand. I don't know. I don't know. None of the hostages so far have given any direct accounts of the conditions in which they were held. And hospitals have been told, do not discuss details because that could cause harm to the people who are still being held captive. But we're beginning to hear some things. For instance, one of the uh, medical team at Shamir Medical Center where 17 people from Thailand, the nationals from Thailand were treated, said that they had been fed, now this is an interesting way of framing it, very unnutritious food in captivity. I guess that means food with low caloric value. I'm sure they were giving them fresh salads. Uh, but the people apparently had lost a significant amount of their body weight in a very short time. Because let's say it's six, seven weeks that they've been in captivity. To lose 10% of your body weight in that amount of time is dramatic. Margarita Mishabi, who happens to be a doctor at the Wolfson Medical Center, one of the main facilities that's been caring for the hostages, the freed hostages, said that those she spoke to described that they were kept several stories underground. They didn't have any light. They only got light for two hours a day. The patients told her that meals consisted of rice, canned hummus and fava beans, and sometimes salted cheese with pita, but not more than that. No fruit, no vegetables, no eggs, she said. Now, there's hunger in Gaza. We understand that the Palestinian territory during the war has been telling the world, sounding the alarm about widespread hunger. So if their people are hungry, not that they care that much about their people, but I'm sure they're not feeding the hostages very well. They were not allowed to, you know, not just be given food that was nutritious, but the hostages are not allowed to have a pen or a pencil, which they were asking basically just so they could pass the time. But they were afraid that if they wrote things down that they would be able to transmit information. So they had no TV, no books, no papers to read, and all they could do was basically talk to one another. And this is coming from one of the physicians. Now, Esther Yaeli, the grandmother of a 12-year-old French-Israeli boy who was released on Monday, told the Walla News website that he was held in solitary confinement for 16 days. The days that he was alone were horrible, and now he is very withdrawn. The noises of the bombs hurt him. His ears hurt for a very long time, he, he told his grandmother. The returned hostages have arrived after nightfall, and they do an immediate medical assessment of them just to see if they have any urgent medical needs. Two of them have been hospitalized. 
after their release, the 84-year-old Elma Avraham, who was in ICU, but apparently they're saying today that her condition has improved. And look, did anybody think it weren't, wasn't going to be horrible conditions that they were holding him in and that there will be long-term medical consequences for them? And no, the doctors aren't going to tell us. They're not going to elaborate on any of this because th there's patient privacy concerns. But I know that what we're going to be finding out in the years ahead, because I don't know how long this is going to go on. Nobody does. But I think we can be quite certain that we're going to find out about a lot of horrible treatment of these hostages, particularly when the men are finally released. Because think about the brutality that the initial attack consisted of. You know, shooting old people in the face. You know, burning households. Stealing babies. You know, that to me is the one part that just reduces Hamas to subhuman. If you believed even for a moment that there is some rationale for this fight that the so-called Palestinian people, that Hamas is waging against Israel, if you saw it as some sort of plea or effort of liberation, you would still say, but don't, don't hurt babies. Don't be so indiscriminate about the kind of captives that you have. In my life, and trust me, I've seen some brutal, brutal depictions of war. We all lived through all the movies that came out after Vietnam of some of the most god-awful images, and some of them perpetrated by American troops, not under orders of the military, but there was a lot of insanity in that war. And there were villages that were burned, and there were children in those villages, and we know that. War is horrifying. But at no point can you, see, even if you look at like the most horrific pictures from World War II, pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where, of course, some of the most famous pictures do involve children, children running, literally running naked through the streets because the burning was so uh, profound that they just stripped off their clothes. So children have always been affected most harshly by war, but at no point do I remember seeing soldiers of any kind brutalizing children. It's just not... The, the only time I ever see that is when you look at some of these crazy apocalyptic shows that are on now, or you look at some of these, you know, dragons and... Uh, it's not, I don't watch these shows, but my husband does, you know, these Nordic dramas of uh, Vikings and all this other stuff. There's some pretty brutal scenes, but even there, you just don't see the brutalization of babies. So, you know, I, I can't, I can't even summon up like a slight amount of understanding. I really can't. So when I see these protests going on all over the place, 
I I just I get this vile anger, and I I just can't I just can't summon up even a, a, a iota of sympathy. I know there are innocent people. I do. I know there are innocent people who will be affected by this forever. But who who votes for people who would do this? Who lives under people who would do this? Who continues to defend people who would do this? What kind of students do we have on college campuses that would defend this brutality and even claim it didn't happen, even though they videotaped it themselves with those GoPro cameras? They're still saying, oh, no, that's Israeli propaganda. Mm -mm, it's not. Elon Musk was just there, and he said, it's not propaganda. I saw the film. Anyway, let me take a break. Don't forget, we've got a lot more to talk about today, and uh, this is that post-Thanksgiving week and going into the serious holiday. And, of course, my holiday begins on Friday because Friday is my birthday. So, you know. You can expect me to be in a, well, somewhat jovial, but somewhat pensive. Pensive, that's a good word for the mood that happens when you hit these landmarks. You know, every 10 years you have one of these birthdays where you have to like pause and say like, whoa, how did that happen? And Friday will be one of those for me. But for right now, quick break, stay right where you are. So uh, Americans are doom spending. You know, I talk about doom scrolling and doom spending. Apparently, I have talked about this before, but I'm really struck by the numbers that I'm seeing coming out. I was reading some articles on CNBC's website that almost everybody in America right now is concerned about the economy. Even though we had some figures today which really were good signs and yet, it doesn't seem to be manifesting itself positively. In other words, again, it's almost like everything that bleeds, leads, even when it comes to the economy. So the, uh, the GDP actually leaped 5.2% just now in the third quarter. That's a pretty big story. That's a pretty important story. And I have to, I've looked everywhere. I found like maybe two articles on it and I haven't seen it on anything. Not that I watch a lot of TV, but I watch a lot of online reportage. Nothing, nothing about 5.2% increase in the third quarter in the gross domestic prod product. That's big. So what ends up happening is you have this sort of a, a doom spending. And here's what I'm talking about. And it's obvious. People cope with stress in whatever way they can. And one of the ways they do it is to spend money. So they had a bunch of stories about consumer spending and how it was pretty resilient in spite of the fact that credit cards are... There's a lot of credit card debt out there. There's even a lot of credit cards maxed out. And that's according to reports by Intuit and Credit Karma. And what ends up happening is it doesn't matter what the inflation rate is. doesn't matter even what the interest rates are. Because even though those things squeeze your budget, 200 million shoppers 
turned out between Black Friday and Cyber Monday so that they're predicting that holiday spending is going to reach record levels, that you're going to see you know, something like $966 billion spent because it's just like doom scrolling, right? You're mindlessly doing something, in this case shopping, so that you don't have to worry about the economy and you don't have to worry about wars and rumors of wars. And uh, the problem is that you're going to have to deal with this and your financial well-being is not going to be what you think. Because if you have a, million, a trillion dollars, that's what the latest figure was for credit card debt, a trillion dollars. And the people most susceptible to building up that, that kind of debt are Gen, Gen Z and millennials. And they're not cutting their expenses. 73% of Gen Zers say they would rather live in the moment. High inflation made it really hard for people who are starting out. About 53% of Gen Zers said that the increased cost of living is a barrier to their financial success. Younger adults feel discouraged. They've been working and every dollar that uh, they earn, they have to spend on necessities. It's not like they're you know, driving around in fancy cars. So what do you do? How do you restore the sort of understanding in an entire, actually two generations, Gen Z and millennials, that you need to save? And you need to not just spend every dime that you have because you end up paying 20% more in credit card interest, which is mind-boggling. The people who can least afford it end up with all of that interest. So I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. I, I, I see it happening. I watch it in the supermarkets, you know, right after the COVID pandemic and all of the limits that people had on their spending, because, hey, you weren't running around, and so you weren't spending in quite the same way. And people had started saving again. Now all that saving has been depleted, according to all these reports on CNBC and the Fox Business News, gone, you know, and incurring greater debt. I can tell you right here in the community in which I live, the, um, what do they, well, I guess they call it maintenance, homeowners fees, whatever it is in, in condos, have really increased by 17, 20% year over year since 2020. Now, I'm still in the working class. You know, I still earn a salary. And even if it were living on the Social Security income and 401k income, there's two of us. So when we see an increase like that, we, we sigh, we gasp, but we can do it. But I think about some of my neighbors. I have neighbors who are in their 90s living on a single Social Security check. And even if they receive the maximum benefits, and many of them do, they were professionals, how are they going to do, how are they going to survive with this inflation 
destroying whatever savings they might have had, if they still have any left, and their expenses increasing. I don't know. But eventually, this house of cards is going to collapse. And when you see the fact that the Americans don't even register that the GDP is up 5%, they're just still thinking about what they spent when they went to uh, Publix, how they're unable to, to buy some of the things that they normally would buy when they shop at a supermarket. And then, of course, forget about you know the, the, the cost of, of large items, whether it's a car or it's a washing machine. People go without. People are driving older cars and not complaining about it either, hoping that it can keep them running. So this is a, a balloon that's going to burst, whatever you call it, a bubble that's going to burst, particularly when it comes to the money that we are paying on mortgages, the money that we pay for rent. And we've got a whole generation that has stopped saving. They can't save. I'm not even going to blame them. How do you save if you're earning fifty to $100,000 a year and you have even just one child? Save? Not likely. You know, you're, you're lucky if you're not in debt, in credit card debt. And you're lucky if you own a home and you were really lucky if you got it before some of the rates went high. By the way, rates have come down. You know, I was talking today with, uh, you know, some of the mortgage, well, Michael Codsey's got mortgages in fives again. That's pretty great. So, I mean, things could conceivably get much better, but this doom shopping that I'm watching, and I'm watching it. Like, for instance, I got a gift today that came from my children for my birthday. It's a big birthday, so I, I knew they were going to go above and beyond. It's, you know, that's what kids do. I wasn't supposed to open it until Friday, but I'm like a child, you know. So I opened it, and it's a beautiful gift, um, jewelry, and it's all my children and grandchildren's birthstones, and, you know, it's just beautiful, handmade, gorgeous piece of jewelry. And I'm thinking to myself, like, People can't really, well, I'm lucky that my children can afford it, but most people can't afford this kind of extra special gift. And and most people are trying to figure out how they're going to pay their bills. So I'm kind of removed from all that, but I'm watching. And it's going to impact this election, I'm telling you right now. It's not good for Joe Biden. The cost of things is not good. Gas prices are coming down, but it's still not enough to, to guarantee that he'll get credit for this. So you're going to see Nancy Pelosi has been tasked with telling people how much worse it's going to be when Donald Trump, if Donald Trump were to win. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Anyway, don't forget coming up after me, Eric Erickson, followed by Joe Paggs and then Lars Larson, Red Eye Radio, and then at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, Jen and Bill will be back with the South Florida Morning Show, followed by Brian Kilmeade and then Dan Bongino at noon and me back again at 3 o'clock. I still have one segment left today, though, so don't touch that dial. So there's a whole bunch of data that just got published on life expectancy in the United States. And I mean, it's better than during the worst of the pandemic. But you know what? 
it's not good. Drug overdoses, homicides, chronic illnesses like heart disease are driving a mortality crisis that has made this country actually we're an outlier in longevity among wealthy nations. Life expectancy in 2022 rose more than a full year to 77 and a half. And then that's really according to the CDC, who I have trouble believing anyway, but more than four-fifths of this positive jump was attributable to a drop in COVID-19 deaths. But the rebound in 2022, which we were waiting for, didn't happen. The amount of recovery, or at least it didn't happen to the degree that we thought it would. A lot of other countries, they are doing better than we are when it comes to life expectancy, which I guess didn't used to concern me as much as it does these days. In 2019, the life expectancy for an American was 78.8 years old. Then it tanked to 76.4 in 2021, which is the lowest it had been since 1996. And of course, that was due to the COVID deaths in, in January and February of that year. And then we rolled out the vaccine and apparently they're claiming that's why deaths decreased. I think it's just because we stopped treating the pandemic as if it were the end of the world and doing these ridiculous procedures on people instead of just allowing them to get well. But COVID is still around and people are still getting it. And, and people, some people still go to the hospital with it, especially older people and people who are immunocompromised, I guess. But, you know, it's other diseases and it's definitely overdoses that are driving this life expectancy down. And, uh, of course, like I said before, I never used to think about life expectancy much. I never thought that I'd get to be very old. I just didn't think so. I think I was part of that generation that said, um, don't trust anyone over 30 because we thought that was old. But now that I'm coming up on 70, I can tell you that uh, life expectancy starts to be rather important to me. And knowing that American life expectancy right now is about 77 and a half years old means I'm at the front of the line is what it means. <laughs> so that's all right. You know, I'm just going to, live every day as though it were the best and my last. So I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at three o'clock, if it be his will and he delays his coming. What lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.